Hey, well, um, welcome to the future. It's 2015. Um, I'm going to welcome the Benton Heights campus, Stevensville campus. Um, to be honest with you guys, um, 2015, I am a, a little bit disappointed. Um, I thought we'd be eating our meals in pill form by now, right, and driving flying cars. Uh, but we will have to, um, we'll just have to accept what, what, what it is. And so, um, but really, we hope that you guys had a, a great new year. Uh, we're, in a, we're starting a brand new series called New Year's Revolution. Usually around this time, uh, we make resolutions, uh, those half-hearted commitments that only a very small percentage of us ever keep. And um, it's kind of weird because um, I feel like, personally, I feel like Christians... We all have the same New Year's resolutions. Every single year, they don't change. Us Christians, we commit to doing three things every single year. Number one, we want to eat healthier. Uh, We want to eat healthier. Number two, we want to exercise more. And then as a Christian, your third commitment every single year is you want to eat healthier, you want to exercise more, and you want to read your Bible more. And so that is the New Year's Christian trifecta. How many guys, that, that, that was your New Year's resolution? Exactly, yeah, every year. If it was your New Year's resolution last year, guess what? It'll be your New Year's resolution for next year um, because you are a Christian and that's what you do. Those are those three things you commit to. So, um, but this year, uh, we're going to do away with resolutions and we're going to start a revolution. Uh, now, that term revolution uh, may sound kind of military to you because it kind of is. You may think of a, a group of revolutionaries coming together to maybe overthrow a government or maybe a group of people coming together to to fight an injustice. Um, But there's also another definition for revolution. Uh, The definition for revolution is this. It's a a dramatic and a wide-reaching change in the way something works or is organized or in people's people's ideas about. So it's kind of a a wide-reaching change in maybe the way that society works. Maybe the way we interact with society, maybe how society acts as a whole, it can be a wide-reaching change, a revolution. And so what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks is we're going to be talking about um, some teachings of Jesus that ultimately changed his society and that should have an impact and change our society in the same way. And if we're honest with one another, our society could use a revolution, couldn't it? Things could do, you know, our, our society could use a little shifting, a little, a little changing. But I'm convinced that we as the church need to change the way we interact with our society. I'm convinced that if we as the church will revolutionize the way we interact with our society, then our society by default will change. And here's what I mean. I don't think that we really have a clue or a clear understanding of what people outside of these walls, of what our neighbors, what our coworkers, non-believers, what they really think about us and how they really view us, the church, or us as Christians. For the most part, it's not very positive. Um, really, uh, when, when, um, we, we, we can't really assume anymore that our neighbors and that our coworkers and that our children's um, sports teams, that, that their parents, we really can't assume that people are actively engaged or actively going to a church. 
We can't assume that in our society or in our culture in this day. The truth is, is that people are leaving organized religion. Some people are leaving the church altogether for a multitude of reasons. We all know somebody that they don't have an issue with God. They actually like God. They actually, they don't even have an issue with Jesus. They love Jesus and they actually follow Jesus' teachings. But what they have an issue with is they can't stand the church. Because of some past hurt, some past wound that they experience, some hurt that hasn't healed yet. And they've been carrying around this hurt. Maybe they were mistreated whenever they went to a church. Maybe they weren't accepted. And so it's caused this division between them and church. And while some churches are trying to figure out how to solve this problem, I think that this is a great opportunity for us to rebrand Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. So today, we're going to be looking at, we're going to be talking about the revolutionary power of grace. What if we, as a church, overflowed with grace? Where we as a church was a church where people who've been wounded, people who've been hurt, the outcasts, the marginalized, people who doubt, the non-believers, the skeptic. What if we were a church that we were a safe place where they were welcomed and they were loved and accepted just as the person is loved and accepted that's sitting next to you right now? What if we were a church that did that? That whenever someone walked through those doors that doesn't look like us, doesn't live their life like us, matter of fact, they don't even believe what we believe. They actually oppose what we believe. And they walk through those doors and they choose to sit right next to us. What if we loved them and accepted them just as much as the person that does believe what we believe? That's a church that overflows with the power of grace. And there's power in that church. So today we're going to be looking at one of Jesus' most powerful acts of grace. We're going to be discussing how, how, how this powerful act of grace should challenge our views and challenge our thinking. We're going to be looking at the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. So it's found in John chapter 8 verses 2 through 11. The word of God reads this. It says that dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and, and he sat down to teach them. And then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Then they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus He bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. This is a story 
of revolutionary grace. This woman, as well as the man, although he's not mentioned, but this woman, as well as the man, should have been put to death. But Jesus steps in and he dispenses grace instead. I believe this should change our view of three things. The first way to change our view, it should change our view of God. The way Jesus so gently, so graciously, how he was kind in his act of showing grace to this woman. You know, for many of us, I believe that we've been handed down this, this, this God. We, we, we grew up um, believing in this God of justice, this God that, that punishes sin. And we've bought into this idea that God is sitting in heaven and he's sitting there and he's waiting for us to, to mess up. And this is the God that we have conceptualized in our mind. This God of wrath, this God that's easily angered, this God that rules with the iron fist. But if we just take a look at the God in this story, if we just take a look at Jesus, the God in flesh, how he interacted with this woman, how he showed grace to this woman, this is our God, church. This is our God that whenever we mess up miserably again, he looks at us and he says, who condemns you? And then he looks at us and he says, neither do I. But don't mishear me, though. Because Jesus, not only did he dispense grace, he also dispensed truth. Because whenever he sent this woman away, he said, hey, you go and you leave your life of sin. Jesus understood what the law said. And indeed, the law did say that someone caught in the act of adultery should be punished. And that punishment is death. So Jesus knew the law. But Jesus knows that there should be a punishment for the act that this woman had committed. But he also knew something that maybe she didn't understand yet. He also knew that one day, one day he was going to take that punishment on himself and he was going to die for that very act that that woman was caught in. That Jesus himself, God in flesh, was going to take the punishment for that act of sin. See, church, it wasn't that the sin didn't go unpunished. The sin was punished. It's just who the punishment fell on. The sin required a punishment, and that punishment was death. God in the flesh, Jesus said, I'll take that punishment. And he took it on behalf of her sin, behalf of my sin, behalf of your sin. This is the God we serve. A God of radical, revolutionary grace. He's not sitting. He's not waiting for us to make a mistake. He's not a God that's, that's so rigid and legalistic and, and full of rules. He's a God of grace. And I'm sure you know what that word grace means. Let me remind you. It means unmerited favor. It means undeserved, unearned favor. There's nothing you can do to earn it. This woman didn't do anything to earn God's intervention. She didn't deserve God's intervention, but God chose to do it. Just like God chooses to dispense grace in your life and my life. You don't deserve it. Lord knows I don't deserve it, but he chooses to do it. I can really appreciate this because 
My own father displayed this grace in my life. Last week, I was joking around and telling you guys that um, I got kicked out of college. It wasn't a joke. I got kicked out of college. And um, when I grew up, um, my dad was kind of tough on me. My dad, was a, my dad was a Green Beret, and he was in the Special Forces. And my dad used to tell me things like, I, he, he used to call me boy. He didn't even call me my name. No kind of dignity I had, man. He called me boy. He's like, boy, come here. My name's Kevin, man, boy. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> you guys didn't have to live with it. I had to live with it. Um, but he, he'd say, boy, come here, whatever. And so he's kind of tough on me, but, but he, would tell me, he would tell me this. He said, boy, I can kill you with one finger. That's what he used to tell me. And I believed him. So he was tough on me. And so here I am. I'm in college. And I get kicked out of college. And so now I got all my stuff packed up in my Jeep. And I'm driving home, and you know the only thing I can think of is what? He can kill me with one finger. <laughs> and my dad really wasn't affectionate growing up. He really didn't show me affection. You know, rarely did he hug me. Rare, rarely did, did he do those things towards me. Um, and I remember pulling in the driveway, going up to the door, and he knew I got kicked out of college. He was waiting for me. I knocked on the door. My dad answered. And the first thing he did is he hugged me. And he told me everything's going to be okay. And then he started to build me up with his words. He said things like, you know what? This is just a bump in the road, man. He said, you're going to be successful. You're going to go on. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to be great. You're gonna... And he started building me up. And this showed me a picture of who God is. A picture of the God, of the father in the prodigal son story. A picture of the father who goes out and he waits by the road every single day in the anticipation of his son coming back. Not with his arms crossed. Not with his arms crossed thinking, you know what, man, when that son comes back, man, I'm going to teach him a lesson. No, no, no. This father is out there every single day with the party ready to be thrown in this son's honor. He's every single day with his arms open waiting to see his son. Run and go meet him. That's the God you and I serve. That's the God you and I serve. This grace should change your view of God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, Scripture says this. It says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only son who, come from the, who, come from, who came from the father Full of what? Full of grace and truth. This is our God. He's full of grace and truth. But I feel like the God that we've been taught, the God we've been exposed to for the majority of our lives has been one-sided. It's just been a God of truth. Uh, A a God that punishes sin. A God that's angry. A God that's furrow-browed. A God that's waiting. a, A God that's hiding out. A God that sees everything you do. My mom used to tell me, man, God's going to get you. My mom used to tell me that. I tell you, man, my dad can kill me, now my mom something. God's going to get you. I was scared as a kid, man. <laughs> so, but we, we, we've been taught this God of truth. I feel like it's just been one-sided. Let's not mistake, church, that we serve a God that's also full of grace. I think whenever we have a view of God, we kind of view God like um, TV commercials. We view him like 
Like these TV commercials that are trying to sell us something and they have these great deals, but at the end of the commercial, it says terms and conditions may apply. Hey, if you change your, your, your cell phone company, you can get free unlimited texting, you know, but terms and conditions may apply. Oh, you thought you could text anytime? No, you, you can only text, you know, between the hours of 2 and 4 a.m. That's when it's unlimited. Or you have your frequent flyer miles. You thought you could cash those in for actual flight? Stupid. No, you can't do that. Because terms and conditions may apply. And I feel like we have this same view of God. That, that God is a God of grace and that he's come to free me. But somewhere there's these hidden terms and conditions. Somewhere there's something that God wants in return. That this really can't be true. This is too good to be true. Friends, let me tell you. In John chapter 8, when it says that whoever the sun sets free is free indeed, there are no terms and conditions. It's true. His grace sets you free. No terms, no conditions. There's no hidden terms or conditions. The only thing God asks of you is that you love him and that you love other people. That's it. So this, this revolutionary grace should change your view of God, but it should also change your view of yourself. It should change your view of ourselves. I can't imagine being this woman. Just think about this woman in this story. I can imagine that maybe she felt like, uh, you know, she had reached the end of her life. She's been caught in this very act. She knows what, what being caught in this act means. And we really don't know what kind of view she carried around of herself. Maybe she come from a broken home. Maybe she was mistreated as a child. Maybe she come from a single parent home, abused. I don't know. We don't know what kind of view she carried around about herself. Maybe she had low self-esteem. Maybe she was seeking out any kind of acceptance and any kind of love, even if it meant the death of her. But I can't help but to imagine that even if she did carry around that view of herself, that that day when she was thrown in front of that group of people, humiliated, and Jesus intervened on her behalf and tells her, no one condemns you, I don't either. I can't help but to imagine that that experience, that moment changed the view she had about herself. She began to walk a little taller. She began to walk a little straighter. She began to feel more positive about herself because the God of the universe intervened on her behalf. He dispensed grace whenever she didn't even deserve it. It changed the view of herself. Maybe you can relate to this woman. Maybe you have your own group of people around your life that they've been labeling you. They've been telling you who you are. They've been telling you what you deserve, maybe what you don't deserve. And what happens is you begin to believe those labels. You begin to eternalize those labels. And so whenever something happens to you, even if it's bad, you say things like, you know what, I deserve that. Because, yep, I'm a, yep, I failed, I deserve it. I'm this, I'm that. You've eternalized those labels. God wants to change your view of yourself. You had a child out of wedlock, and you know what? Now, you know, you failed God, you failed the family, you're a failure. 
Your gambling problem has been exposed. Now you're just a liar and you're a cheater. You're a deceiver. Your family tells you that, 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 that you'll, you'll never change. You'll always be this way. And we've allowed other people to shape the view we hold of ourselves. This revolutionary grace, man, it should change the way we view ourselves. To quote Brennan Manning, he's the author of the Ragamuffin Gospel. He says this. He said, God loves us as we are, not as we should be, because we'll never be as we should be. Will you accept this truth? That God loves you as you are, not as you should be? You'll never be as you should be? Will you accept this truth, man, that that you are worthy of God's grace? That you are desirable? You are loved? You are accepted? You are imperfectly perfect in the sight of God? I don't even know if that made sense. But that's what you are. There's nothing. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. He demonstrates a perfect love towards you. Do you believe this tonight? That his, he demonstrates a perfect love towards you. A love that covers a multitude of sins. Matter of fact, Romans 5.8 says this. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you wanted nothing to do with God, he wanted everything to do with you. Don't allow the enemy to sneak into your life and rob you of the grace of God, rob you of the freedom of God. Hear me. There is nothing. There is nothing. There is no act. There, there, is no, there is no sin, there is no past that is too great for God's grace. You are not unworthy. The creator of the universe has pursued you to dispense his grace in your life. There's nothing that can keep you from his grace. Nothing too great for his grace. We don't have to change for God to love us. He loves us, and because of that, what it does is it creates this desire to change. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. It says three times, this is Paul, he said, I pleaded with the Lord. He prayed to God, take this away from me. But he said this to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul prays. The Bible says that he had this thorn in his flesh. He was dealing with something. Some people think it was an illness. Other people think it was his vision because he couldn't see well. Other people think it was just a, a, a temptation that tormented him. Either way, he had this thorn in his flesh. You have thorns in your flesh. I have thorns in my flesh that we deal with. Whatever it may be, a habit, a secret you're carrying around, you get easily angered. You have a thorn in your flesh, and I do. And the Bible says that Paul prayed to God three times about this. He prayed, God, take this away. God, take this away. God, take this away. How many times have you prayed about your thorn? Man, I know, I know, I, I'm always praying about mine. And God answered Paul in this way. 
And this is the same way I believe he's answering you. He said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for you, Kevin. Whenever you're a hypocrite, whenever you say one thing and do another, my grace is sufficient. Whenever you have those thoughts, my grace is sufficient. When you carry around those secrets, my grace is sufficient. I don't know if you've ever had the humbling experience of going to the store and, and, and swiping your debit card and, and a message pop up and it says insufficient funds, uh, meaning what you brought to the counter, you've been rejected, you've been denied and you can't go home with those things because you don't have the funds for it. If we can view God in that sense, no matter what we bring to him, no matter how great how messy our past is, no matter how messy our present is, no matter how messy and what a mess you're going to make tomorrow of your life, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. Today, it's sufficient. It'll be sufficient tomorrow. His grace is sufficient. And he goes on to say, a matter of fact, whenever you're weak, that's when I'm strong. Listen, do you realize that your greatest ministry will probably come out of your greatest weakness? Where you will impact people the most is out of your greatest weakness. Because Jesus said, hey, my power is made perfect in your imperfection. So this grace ought to change our view of God. It ought to change the view of ourselves. Lastly, importantly, it ought to change our view of others. Can you imagine being one of those men carrying this woman to Jesus, stone in hand, ready for Jesus to give the green light? And so you're asking Jesus all these questions, and, and Jesus stoops on the ground, and he starts writing in the sand, and suddenly Jesus stands up, and he tells these men this, and he tells this, and he tells this to you. He says, whoever is without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And Scripture says, one by one, these men walked away. There's something disarming whenever we place ourselves in other people's shoes. There's something disarming whenever we see ourselves as the same as others. I mean, maybe these men, you know, maybe they've never committed adultery in their life, but, but hearing those words from Jesus triggered something in their mind. It triggered some shortcoming that they've had in their life. And this is where I believe that that we have, have failed um, personally uh, as the American church. A survey group, the Barnard group, they, they, they took a poll of college students. and They asked them this question. What is the first thing that comes to mind whenever you hear the word Christianity? The most common response was this. People who don't practice what they preach. Man, we're, we're good at preaching grace, church. We're good at having these great slogans. Hey, you know, everyone is welcome. Come as you are, man. But frankly, people really don't believe that, and I don't know if I do either. This is a place of grace. We're good at preaching it. But man, when they walk through the door,
Christianity Today, um, they published an article in their magazine, The Four Common Complaints About Christians. You don't listen to me. You judge me. Your faith confuses me. You talk about what's wrong instead of making it right. Why is it that we're known more for what we're against than what we're for? Christians are known for more than what we're against than what we're for. We've taken on this defensive mindset. We've taken on this defensive mindset thinking that um, we need to, 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 to stay away from sinners because if we get too close, we might become polluted and become like them. I got news for you. You're already a sinner. You're not going to become like them. You are them. I'm them. The only difference is the grace of God. Here's one thing I do know is this. Is we live in a society and a culture that is thirsting for God. We live in a culture that, that is in this restless pursuit for pleasure. A culture that, that fears dying. A culture that gets easily bored. A culture that, where addiction reigns. And they're thirsting for God. And God has given us weapons of grace. And we should, as, as Philip Yancey, as he says in his book, Vanishing Grace, that we should be grace dispensers, but, we, but we're spending too much time being guilt dispensers. God's called us to be grace dispensers, and we're out here dispensing guilt. You know, we got to saying it at my church, Benton Heights, where we're hope dealers. That's what we do, man. We, we deal out hope in our neighborhood. Not guilt, hope. Um, Hebrews 12, um, 14 and 15. Listen to this. Listen to this. Man, it says, make every effort to live in peace. With who? With everyone. Everyone means that person that doesn't believe the way you believe. The person that doesn't um, have the same political stance that you have. The person that is anti and the person that, and whatever, Live at peace. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, check this out. It says this. See to it that what? No one falls short of the grace of God. That no one misses this grace. Quick story and I'm done. 2012, I'm a youth pastor since 2000, since I got out of college a long time ago. And, um, and we would go to a lot of youth conferences, and we, we would go everywhere across the country to these different youth conferences. And there was always a day in that youth conference where they would have you go serve the community. And um, I'm that youth pastor where I was like, you know what? If we're going to do something like that, we're going to do what Jesus would do, and we're going to go find the marginalized. We're going to go find every individual that, that society says don't talk to. Those are the people we're going to talk to. Every individual that society has marked dangerous, those are the people we're going to become friends with. And so as a youth pastor, I probably, um, you know, parents probably, they didn't know this, but it's what I did. And um, so at every youth conference, whenever we'd have that service day, we would go out and we would go spend time with homeless people. We would take them to lunch, get to hear their story, um, just, just, be, just share grace with them. And um, in 2012, we were at a conference in Indianapolis. 
that day of the conference, we went out and we met with a whole bunch of homeless people, prayed for some, ate with others. And this one guy, he seemed to be in real need. And so we prayed for him and he said, hey, he's like, hey, I got this job interview and um, I really need a haircut and I need a background check. Background check, you know, he's like, hey, background check's like $40, my haircut, you know, it's probably about 10 bucks. So that's $50. And people automatically are like, oh, homeless dude, $50? Oh, man, you know, that's, you know, that's going. But we as a youth ministry just chose to believe him, take him at his word, because he's a human being just like you and me. We chose to believe him, and we dispensed grace, and we gave him the money. Later that week, he had a haircut. Later that week, he said he got the job. And that was in 2012. Just Christmas Eve, one of my youth leaders at the time kept in contact with this man because um, through Facebook, he was homeless. So whenever he'd get to the library, he'd be on Facebook and stuff. And um, 2012, just this past Christmas Eve, 2014, this homeless man wrote one of my student leaders. And this is what he had to say up on the screen. Small act of grace. Just wanted to drop you in line to wish you, a, you and your family a very Merry Christmas. A lot has happened this year for me. I've been back in school a whole year getting my high school diploma. I went from zero credits to 28 in one year. I also passed both of my ECAs, English and Algebra. And I'm due to graduate in March 2015. I'm so proud of myself for my accomplishments this year. When I graduate, I'm going to go to college in the fall to continue to improve my life. Also, I moved from a sleeping room into a three-bedroom home and began spending time with my children again. I've been very blessed this year, and I have plans to spend time with my family this evening. For tomorrow, we're going downtown to spend some time with our street neighbors and show them that someone cares about them. This is a man that due to a simple act of grace, as Dan comes back up, this is how it works. You dispense grace. The people that receive that grace, guess what they do? They go and they dispense that grace. Church, we serve a God who changes everything by his grace. I pray this evening that your view of God changes, that if you hold this um, conception of God that, that he rules with an iron fist and he's just waiting for you to mess up and, 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 and he's hiding in the corner, man, and, and God's going to get you, if that's the God you hold in your mind, I'm sorry, whoever taught you that. That's not the God I know. That's not the God of the scripture. He's a God of grace. He loves you. He accepts you as you are, not as you should be. Maybe you have the view of yourself of, you know what, man, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm this, I'm that. I, I never can be. I never will. You know what? God's grace should change that because his grace is sufficient. Even whenever you're insufficient, his grace is sufficient. And I pray that individually and as a church, this grace will change our view of people on the outside of these walls. We won't see them as projects, but we'll see them as people.
will see them as issues just like us. And in doing so, we'll be grace dispensers. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that you're a God of grace. And I ask, Lord, that you will um, be with us as we do our best, Lord, to dispense your grace in this county. In Jesus' name, amen.